Good morning, glad to have you with us. We are in 1 Samuel 17 this morning. This is um, the David and Goliath story. It's a very long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, Many of you know this story. But basically, um, I'm going to jump in at verse 26. 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. You have two armies on either side of a valley uh, lining up for battle. Uh, The Israelites, the Philistines. You have a guy named Goliath. I'll explain this a little more. Coming out and saying that he wants to fight with one of their guys. Um, everybody's pretty scared. David's brother, David, this guy David comes, says he'll fight him. His brothers are mocking him. The king Saul is not doing very much. And then this is kind of when we jump in. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I'm going to jump down to verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. 
There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, the flesh is willing, but the spirit, I mean, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We want to hear from your word, uh, as gory as this story is. Uh, We want to learn what it has to teach us about you, about your ways in the world, and most of all, about Jesus. So help us uh, make our flesh stronger so that we can hear what you're saying and retain it and apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We have, of course, today one of the most famous stories in the Bible, uh, a story that's known by many people even well beyond the church. Uh, Just about everybody thinks, I think, would know what we mean when we talk about something being a David and Goliath kind of situation. You have an underdog uh, against all odds overcoming an impossibly fearsome opponent. And of course, we love these kinds of stories. These kinds of stories are all over literature. They're all over our movies. We latch on to these kinds of things. But this in the Bible is not really a story about winning the election as president of your middle school student body. Uh, It's not really a story about coming back in the fourth quarter uh, with the game-winning touchdown. It's not really a story even about how I can overcome the challenges of life if I just trust in God enough. The famous story that we have here is really about how God's anointed king vanquishes the terrifying enemy of God's people. But as we've been talking about, as we've been seeing in 1 Samuel, as the New Testament teaches us over and over, uh, this story, the whole story of the Old Testament, is really about Jesus. That's how he taught his disciples to read the Old Testament. Um, This is particularly the case when we're talking about David. Uh, The Psalms of David, the story of David, the New Testament really latches onto them and says, wow, these are telling us all kinds of wonderful things about who Jesus is, about what he's come to do, about what he's going to do. Jesus is David's great son. He's the Messiah, the anointed one who comes from David to take up David's throne forever and over, ever. So the story is ultimately about how Jesus unexpectedly conquers our greatest enemies. In verses 1 to 11, I didn't read this part, but if you look up in verses 1 to 11, you have the scene being laid out for us. You have the Philistines back at war with the Israelites. Uh, You have one army over there on that hillside. You have another army over here on this side. I've actually been to this valley and seen it. Um, And then you have, you need to remember that way back in chapter 9, this funny story we had about Saul losing his donkeys and going around looking for them. Back in that chapter, we were specifically told that part of Saul's mission from God was to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Uh, Here in chapter 17, you hear in verse 4 that this mighty warrior named Goliath comes out from the Philistine battle lines. Uh, He is a champion, literally in Hebrew it says, a man of the middle. Uh, He's somebody who comes out to fight on behalf of his army. Everything about him, we're told, we get this long description about how big he is. Uh, He's got this towering height. He has this incredible armor. He has these fearsome weapons all over his body. And then he also has this big, boastful speech. 
In verse 8, he shouts out to the Israelites. He says, why have you come out to drop for battle? And then he says emphatically, he says, am I not the Philistine? And aren't you, emphatically, aren't you the slaves of Saul? He says, choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. Goliath is proposing single combat with Israel's own man in the middle. Uh, Whoever wins is going to score for their own army the service of the loser's army. Uh, This kind of thing was fairly common in the ancient world and in the Middle Ages. Uh, You see it a couple times in, for example, the Iliad. Uh, You have like, uh, what's his name? Achilles. Achilles does this a couple times. Um, And I suppose this practice, it might seem a little strange to you, but I'm not sure that it's really that different from the modern practice of two sides picking the baddest lawyers they can find and then just letting them duke it out with each other in the courtroom and see who wins on behalf of their client. Um, But notice now, as Goliath proposes this, notice how scornful he is. He says, I am the Philistine, and you all are just Saul's slaves. In verse 10, he says, I defy. That word means mock. I mock the ranks of Israel this day. That word keeps showing up all through this chapter. A part of us, when you get to that point, is already wondering, especially when we know what Saul's mission was to rescue Israel from the Philistines, a part of us is wondering, where is Saul? Isn't this his job? Isn't he supposed to be the one leading his people to defeat the Philistines? But as we've gotten to know Saul over the last 10 chapters or so, uh, we maybe are by now not terribly surprised. We're not surprised to see that he's passively sitting back behind the front lines. But even more than him just being inactive, uh, in verse 11 we hear that he's just as scared as everybody else. Look at verse 11. It says, When Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Those two words there, those two Hebrew words, dismayed and afraid, they show up together as a pair all over the Old Testament. Uh, They are almost always together uh, on the mouths of God or on on the lips of his prophets, telling God's people to not be dismayed, to not be afraid. When they come together, it's almost always God saying, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, because I'm the mighty God who rules over the world in the cause of justice and truth. You don't have to be afraid or dismayed. But here, God's king and God's people are paralyzed. They're terrified by this great and indestructible enemy. One of the biggest themes for us for the last two years has been fear. Fear. Our world has been totally paralyzed by an enemy far greater than Goliath. Death. Look at everything that's been done, everything that's being done, everything that's been taken from people, everything that's been shamed demonized all the division, all the belittling, all the blaming, all the scapegoating, because we are so fearful about dying from a virus that continues to largely evade our attempts to control it. We are some of the wealthiest and longest living people in the history of the world, and yet in the face of death, with Saul and Israel, we are dismayed and greatly afraid.
But even though we have a greater enemy than Goliath, we also have a greater champion than Saul. Here it's David. In verse 12, we are introduced again to this unlikely champion. We heard about him last week uh, when he was anointed, when he went to go help Saul in his uh, throne room by playing music for him. In verses 12 to 23, this ordinary boy hears. In verses 24 to 37, this ordinary boy speaks. And then in verses 38 to 54, this ordinary boy fights. He hears, he speaks, and then he fights. I think those are the three main movements in the chapter. So first we see him, we hear him hearing. We're reminded that David was the youngest of all of his brothers and that his three oldest brothers now are at this battle. They're old enough, they're talented enough to be there right in Saul's army. When the braggart Goliath is coming out to mock and humiliate God's people twice a day for 40 days straight, we're told that David is back home on the ranch tending the sheep. He's a nobody. He's not even there. But verse 17, his dad sends him up to the battle lines with some treats for his sons and for their commander. Uh, He wants David to come back and bring some news of how things are going. When David gets up to the battle in verse 23, Goliath comes out to shout his usual taunt that he's been giving now every day. And then we're simply told, David heard him. David heard him. We were just told back in verse 11 that when Saul and Israel heard him, they were petrified. In verse 24, all we hear, we hear that all the men of Israel, when they see him, they run away from him and they're much afraid. Again, this emphasis on how fearful they are. But when we're told about David, all we're told is that he heard him. He heard him. He says, hmm. But now in the face of the great threat, the ordinary boy speaks. Verses 24 to 37. The Israelites say to him, do you see this guy? Look at what he's doing. He's come to mock us. There's nothing we can do about it. They tell him that Saul has promised to give great wealth and status and even freedom, uh, which means in this case they don't have to pay taxes. If you beat Goliath, you will be a free man. They say that means you won't have to pay your taxes anymore. And so again, we're wondering why uh, King Saul is not doing more than he's doing. He's throwing money at the problem now. He's saying, well, I'll give somebody a bunch of money if they can do something about this guy. But we're wondering, well, why doesn't he do more? He's supposed to be the champion for the people. He's the king. But then you see in David, this unlikely boy, this great courage. You see this great faith. He says in verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so contrary to what everybody else thinks about the situation, David says, this is totally absurd. Who does this guy think he is? You can't talk about God like that. You can't talk about God's people like this. This is ridiculous. Doesn't he know? Don't all of you know that he's not just mocking us? He's mocking the living God. He's mocking the one true God who gives life to everybody and everything, including Goliath. That's what it means when we say that God is the living God. Faced with the danger of Goliath, Israel just runs away. But David is full of courage. You see it even more so when David's greater son Jesus stares down even greater enemies. Not only death, as terrible as death is, but also sin. 
sin, our spiritual disease of rebellion and pride against God and against his rule over all things. Sin, the Bible says, is an infection from which we cannot possibly cure ourselves. It's a far greater enemy than anything else we face in the ordinary course of life in this world. But when Jesus is staring down his enemies of sin and death in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Erica read for us earlier, as Jesus is staring down sin and death as he goes to the cross, he's preparing to conquer them there, he too is filled with courage. All his friends have fled from him. They are falling asleep on him. They will totally leave him in his time of greatest need, just like the Israelites are fleeing here from Goliath. Jesus was in real agony as he faced the cross, but he knew that there was no other way. He said, Father, is there any way that I can do this without having to go to the cross? And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He knows there's no other way. He was filled with courage, and he went to battle. In his own way, Jesus also said, how dare this enemy defy God? Who do they think they are to mock the living God like this? What, at the end of the day, is death and sin before the living God? It's nothing. David is scorned and mocked by his own brother in verses 28 to 30, one of the brothers who's there at the battle. Just like Jesus' own friends and peers and family dismissed him. Uh, His brother says, who do you think you are? What are you doing here? You're coming here to get some kicks, to, to see an interesting battle. You're just a nobody. Go home. This isn't for you. There's no hope. You can't make a difference. Stop talking about this. But even so, David moves forward. He remains resolute in the face of the absurdity of somebody mocking God, even though they're very strong. He remains resolute in the face of the scorn of his own family. But now in verses 31 to 37, you see his resolution in the face of apathy. In the face of apathy. King Saul now catches wind about this kid who's going around wondering what everybody's so scared of. Uh, This kid who at some point in the past had been helping him by playing music for him. And so when Saul calls him in, uh, David reiterates, he says, what are you guys all so afraid of? Uh, Nobody should be afraid of this guy. And then Saul says, well, why? He says, well, here's why. Because I'm going to go fight with him. That's why people don't need to be afraid of him. Saul immediately dismisses him. He says, no way. He says, there's no hope. You're just a kid. Uh, You don't know what you're doing. This is a fool's errand. Uh, The very king who's supposed to be leading the charge into battle tells David, just forget about it. It's just best to hang back and hope for the best. But David says, no. He says, you know, I've, I've spent my life cracking the skulls of dangerous animals. And, you know, when I was watching the sheep, I would run around and I'd save all of them. This giant that you're all so scared of is going to turn out just like the bears, just like the lions. The reason for that, verse 36, the reason he's going to do that is because he's defied the armies of the living God. David keeps talking about this. And so David now uses God's name for the first time in the chapter. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David's not uh, dismissing the fact that Goliath is very large, that Goliath is very dangerous, that Goliath is very powerful. He's not pretending like this isn't a big deal. But David knows how great God is. David knows that the Lord will deliver him. The ordinary boy hears, the ordinary boy speaks, 
and now the ordinary boy fights. Uh, First, in verses 38 to 40, uh, you can see that he fights, but that he does not fight in the world's way. He fights, but not in the world's way. Saul uh, somehow agrees to let him go for it, uh, but he says, hold on, let me put my armor on you, let me give you my weapons, uh, perhaps because at some level Saul wanted to be able to take some credit for what David was doing. He wanted to look like he was involved with this act of courage. Uh, Saul arms him with the same kinds of weapons that Goliath is using. We're specifically told these little details like, oh yeah, David also now is going to try on a bronze helmet. He's, he's going out, this kid, much smaller, but kind of still looking like him, fighting in his kind of way. Saul is fighting fire with fire, the world's methods and the world's weapons. But David says, no. Uh, he says, oh, it's not going to cut it. It's not going to work. Instead, verse 40, he says, I'm just going to stick with a few rocks and a simple sling, the usual equipment for an ordinary shepherd boy. When Jesus came announcing that God's kingdom had come through him, most everybody thought that this kingdom would come in the world's way. Everybody expected the Messiah. There was a lot of people expecting the Messiah to come at this time. But most everybody expected the Messiah to be a mighty warrior who would march on Jerusalem and kick out the corrupt establishment uh, and then would eventually march on Rome and conquer the hated occupiers. People in first century Palestine would have loved it if Jesus did to the Roman emperor what David does here to Goliath. People would have been clicking their heels with great celebration if Jesus went and killed the Roman emperor. But that is not what Jesus did. Instead, Jesus comes having parties with outcasts. He comes hanging around with infectious, sick people. He comes teaching the crowds with obscure stories. And even though he did do a lot of miracles, a lot of amazing miracles um, that amazed everybody, even though he did lots of miracles, he never did them on demand. And their main purpose was to underscore the truthfulness of the teaching that he was giving, the the teaching that so many people found so difficult and so offensive. And at the end of the day, Jesus' greatest weapon was not a sword, but a cross. Jesus' greatest weapon was not a sword, but a cross. The cross was a method of execution in the first century that was so disgusting and so shameful that it was 400 years before Christians were even willing to paint it or draw it. Culturally, it was so horrific that you don't find Christians putting crosses on anything for 400 years. Uh, Roman politician Cicero said that good Roman citizens never even say the word cross. Terrible manners to even use the word. So disgusting. David did not fight in the world's way, and in verses 41 to 47, you see that he certainly did not fight by the world's gods. David and Goliath are now moving towards each other, and when Goliath sees him, he disdains him. Literally, he shames him. He's just a kid, no armor, no real weapons, therefore no real hope. Goliath thinks it's almost funny. He says, who do you think I am? You think I'm a street dog? You can just chase off with a broomstick? You've got to be kidding me. But then you hear in the end of verse 43 that Goliath, for good measure, throws in some curses. 
from his gods. We've already met one of the Philistine gods way back in chapters 4 to 5. Remember this story about the Philistine god Dagon? Uh, This was the story about the ark goes into battle, it gets captured, the Philistines stick it into the temple of Dagon, and then Dagon literally collapses in the presence of God's Ark of the Covenant. And so Goliath now is calling down curses and insults from Dagon and from his friends in the Philistine pantheon. But David says, come and take it. Come and take it. He says in verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Goliath has the world's greatest weapons available to him at the time. He has all the world's strength going for him. All David says he has is a name. A name. But it's God's name. It's not just any God. It's the one true God, the living God, the God who humiliated the pride of Egypt, the God who would one day conquer the might of Babylon, the God who even later than that was coming one day in the person of Jesus to vanquish the fearsome bondage of death itself. And so David says to him, I am going to kill you. He says, this is interesting, he just says, I'm not doing this for my sake, I'm not doing it to make a great name for myself. But he says, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to chop off your head, I'm going to leave your flesh and all your friends' flesh to be eaten by vultures. He says, the reason I'm going to do that, verse 46, is so that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel. You might think, looking at David and looking at Israel, that there is no God here. That God has abandoned them, that God has forgotten about them. But David says, no, no, don't be mistaken. You are going to learn that there is a God in Israel. The whole world is going to learn that there is a God in Israel. He says, I'm going to do it also so that this whole assembly, remember, they're all scared. They need to learn something too. He says, I'm doing it so that this whole assembly might know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. They all think God saves with sword and spear. That's why they're all so scared. David says, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. It's not David's battle. It's not my battle. It's not your battle. It's the Lord's. With one stone, David sinks an impossibly mighty enemy. He crashes face down to the ground, just like his own God did in his own temple. David, I love these gory, gruesome details in the Bible. David finishes the job. He goes and he stands on his body. He's kind of laying there, kind of half out of it. David chops off his head with his own sword, and he grabs the head and does a bunch of crazy stuff with it, uh, so that all of Israel will join in the conquest. They also, they say, wow, this is great. They chase the Philistines off. They take all their stuff. It's great. This is what Saul was supposed to be doing all along. The battle is the Lord's. That's why Jesus' death on the cross is not simply a tragic act of love and courage. A lot of people think, what a tragedy. This wonderful guy, Jesus, he had some interesting things to say, but then his life just came to an end. He's just kind of lost in the face of the world. How tragic, but wow, he really loved us, didn't he? Jesus does love us. His death was a tragedy, but it wasn't simply those things. Even though everybody in the world, looking at the death of Jesus, looking at this man hanging there naked on the cross with vultures flying around waiting to eat him off of the cross, even though everybody in the world would have looked at Jesus there with those two thieves, and they would have thought, there is nothing there but disdainful weakness. There is nothing there but utter defeat. Even so, the death of Jesus 
was actually God's mighty conquest of sin and death. That's what was really happening there on the cross. Jesus was conquering enemies far greater than Goliath. They're being conquered by a hero far greater than David. We know this because Jesus actually rose from the dead. Let me say that again. A lot of us are Christians. A lot of us have grown up around uh, hearing these things. But I'm going to say it again. Because Jesus actually rose from the dead. The resurrection is not just a nice consolation fairy tale that Christians tell themselves in the face of a world that is passing them by and overlooking them. Not just something we say to make ourselves feel better. But the resurrection actually happened. God actually came into the world as a human and actually came back from the dead. And he's not dying again. If you believe in Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of death. You should not be afraid of death. And on top of that, Jesus' conquest of death in the resurrection is also his conquest of sin. If you believe in Jesus, your sin died there with Jesus on the cross. It means that if you believe in Jesus, you are no longer guilty in God's sight, even for the things that you were doing last night. If you believe in Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of the consequences of your sin because you are free from sin. You are fully forgiven for your sin, even for the ones you haven't committed yet. Jesus is victorious. At the end of the chapter, I didn't read this paragraph, but you have Saul kind of confused about who David is. He keeps asking, whose son is he? Uh, Maybe this is underscoring for us that Saul is really losing it, that he's declining because Saul's already met David. Um, But he has a good point that David's spectacular victory does raise the question of where David comes from. It does raise the question of his lineage, of his origin. And in the same way, Jesus' much greater victory over the much greater enemies of death and of sin should cause us to consider and wonder whose son he is. It's one of the most important questions that anybody could ever ask. Whose is Jesus? Who does he belong to? Where does he come from? Who is his father? He tells us he's the son of the father. He's the son of God. He shares in God's identity. He is the living God. Listen to this as Jesus talks about where he comes from, about who his father is. This is John chapter 6. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus has come to do the Father's will, to raise you from the dead. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our man in the middle. He conquered sin and he conquered death. The battle is the Lord's. You don't need to be afraid. Let's pray. Father, how quick we are to become fearful over even enemies much smaller than sin and death. But we don't even need to be afraid of them. So help us to live in confidence in what Jesus has done for us in the midst of a world that is terrified by death and suffering. Lord, help us as your people to live distinctly, uh, not arrogantly, uh, not recklessly, but Lord, help us to live as a joyful people in the midst of loss, uh, as a people who look beyond the grave to a life that never ends. And as we do that, Lord, shape our lives now. 
Uh, help us to fulfill our callings in this life uh, with greater integrity, greater holiness, uh, greater confidence in the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.